So welcome to our session. We have the pleasure today of having John Young with us. He is author of What the Robin Knows uh, about bird language and was also the founder of Wilderness Awareness School and um, also teaches the art of mentoring, is well known throughout the world and really grateful to have John with us today. And thanks, John, for coming on. Yeah, well, thanks, Lee, for inviting me. It's always always fun to to have a good conversation. Great. Well, John, why don't we start off by uh, just having you tell us a little bit about your background, you know, where you, you grew up, how you, you got involved in nature, um, and, you know, what were some key moments when you were young? Mm, yeah. Well, I was born in 1960 um, in New Jersey in a little, little town called Red Bank, a little city, and um, on the Navasink River, which is really a bay. Uh, but I had two working parents who were very loving, and I have an older sister. She's three years older than me, and um, lived in a neighborhood which was basically an old apple orchard. It was one of the first neighborhoods that came into old farmland there. It's kind of a, was at that time, a sleepy sort of bedroom community for New York City. Like the train line came down from, from Manhattan, and so there was, you know, little neighborhoods that were beginning to uh, encroach into these big open wild spaces, which, you know, used to be farms and forests and things like that. So I had this uh, kind of mixture of suburban upbringing and the freedom of wandering thousands of acres to different fishing holes and so on, and uh, had a love for fishing from a young age that was implanted in me by my my um, my Polish relatives who all came over from Poland and settled in New Jersey and were farmers and hunters and fishermen. And then my Irish family, which did the same in the same area. Um, so I had grandmothers on both sides of the family and uncles and aunties that were all outdoors people and, and you know, inspired me really from a young age to learn how to move with a fishing pole in my hand, you know, and I'd ride my bike for miles alone back in those days to from pond to pond and catch fish and bring them home. Cause my, my Irish grandmother would say, well, if you catch us some fish, I'll help you clean them and we'll make them for dinner. You know? So nothing a boy wants to do more than do something for grandma, you know? So she was really good at that. And uh, I would say that I spoke to her later in life after I'd grown up and done my research and had finished college and was clear that there was a, uh, a cultural web that passed through generations that the grandmothers held really strong to make sure that the children were connected to nature, you know, and my grandmother had that growing up, but from her grandmother, Annie McCormick, and um, she, that was intact. And so she would, you know, conduct little missions for my sister and I. Um, and, you know, a lot of people had grandmothers, extended families, you know, but I think I was the only person in the neighborhood who had a grandmother like 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 nanny cecil she she really had a uh, a whole strategy you know she she'd send me out she'd look at field guides with me from the age of four she'd look at these little golden guides and she'd point out something that according to the range map supposed to live around here whether it was a painted turtle or a box turtle or a corn snake and she'd say have you ever seen this out there jonathan because i think they're around here uh, if you can catch one for Nanny, I would really appreciate that. So, you know, one little session like that, uh, she was so rewarding whenever I brought something back to her with attention and love and 
you know, long conversations and catching my stories and asking me loads of questions that, you know, she could just spend 15 minutes with me and I'd be out for hours every day looking for those things, you know, and I eventually figured out how to catch every single thing that was in the pond life book and the reptiles and amphibian book, you know, is it there one special instance you caught a snapping turtle? I think well, that was that was years later, you okay. know. Um, so when I was ten, I had already uh, in in we had moved to another home just a little ways away from the first home we lived in there, and um, I could ride my bike, you know, back and forth between the old neighborhood and the new one. So it's you know close by. That way, I could keep in touch with my old fishing holes. But the new place gave me access to a whole bunch of new land, like 3000 acres of, uh, there were some beautiful sandy places, you know, where the animal tracks were really clear. But at that point I you know, hadn't discovered tracking per se. Um, but uh, there was this one fishing hole where there was a snapping turtle uh, that was stealing my bait in this one part of the pond, you know? So if I went to that one part of the pond, uh, you know, I couldn't fish for very long before the turtle would come in and scare all the fish away. It was a great big snapping turtle. And I told my dad about it. He said, well, if you can catch me that snapping turtle, I'll make you the best snapping turtle soup you ever tasted. And that's all he had to say to me. He, I don't think he realized that I actually would do it. Because um, the turtle, I, I weighed about 60 pounds and the turtle probably weighed 45 pounds, you know. Wow. And that's a, that's it, a big snapping turtle. Uh, well, right. And it occurred to me on the way down to that pond. Uh, that I actually couldn't, if I caught it, I wouldn't be able to get it home, right? There'd be no way for me to move it a mile through the woods and then a half mile through my neighborhood to my house. There was no way I could do it without help. So I, the last house on the right, before you leave the neighborhood and cross into the mile of woods <laughs> to get to the pond, there was a, the Cella family lived there and Steve Cella was my age and he was in the garage sweeping at the time. And I ran up to him and I said, do you want to catch the biggest snapping turtle you ever saw? And he said, yeah. So he joined me. He didn't tell his mom he was leaving, <laughs> which didn't work out very well. Or well, actually, maybe it worked out really well. <laughs> and uh, Steve and I ran all the way to the pond and we had that turtle in like five minutes. And because there was two of us, we were able to get it back to the neighborhood. But as soon as we showed back up on his lawn with that turtle right at the stop sign in the corner, uh, his mom spotted us and she was so mad. Um, and she grabbed him by the ear and walked him away. Um, threw him in the car and they drove off. And so now I'm standing on the street corner with this giant snapping turtle and I can't get it home the rest of the way. And that was a fateful moment because it was at that moment that my mentor, well, he's now my mentor for 51 years at this point, 50 years. And, it, you know, it, I met him in 1971. So it's, you know, the 50 year anniversary right now. Um, he drove up and he saw me with this turtle. Now, he had had a upbringing with elders as well who were amazing at Nature Connection. But his elder just happened to be one of the Apaches that escaped during the Apache Wars and lived in an enclave with other tribes and other Apaches um, and kept their culture and skills alive, you know, for decades. And after the war stopped and, you know, the West was settled, they, you know, they became sort of a, a cash they, they wouldn't get, they wouldn't surrender. Let's just put it like that. And they just decided to live out their years maintaining their identity as Apaches, you know, and they, they kind of came in and out of society on a cash basis, um, never got identifications. And that went on for many generations, even to this day. Uh, but that elder that raised my, my mentor, my mentor was his father was off the boat from Scotland and he was first generation born in America, Scottish Presbyterian, 
hardworking family, you know, five male cousins, three brothers, all that moved together uh, from Scotland to America and raised their sons in Beechwood, New Jersey. Um, and so, you know, Tom Brown was a, an unlikely person to receive this mentoring, but it just so happened that he bumped into a boy on the beach one day when he was hunting fossils, who also was hunting fossils. And he happened to be with this uh, Apache grandfather who um, then ended up, you know, mentoring uh, Tom and, and his friend Rick uh, for the next 11 years. And Tom was, I think, only seven at the time. So he had a very, very deep connection with the land and tracking and bird language and, you know, skills that, you know, he could make anything out of anything. And he knew what plants were good for medicine. And, you know, he was just an extraordinary person. But I didn't know any of that when I met him. He was 21. I was 10. And um, he, his elder had said, you know, I want you to find somebody to pass these skills on to the way I passed them on to you. And you'll know him by the sign that he carries. <clears throat> so Tom saw me on a street corner with a snapping turtle asked me what it was. I told him it was a common Eastern snapping turtle. And uh, he smiled and he said uh, that was only half an answer. You know, he didn't say it out loud, but he wrote me a letter 10 years later when I turned 21, reflecting on that moment and said that he saw that, uh, that I, had, I was carrying Mother Earth on a string, which he took as the sign that he was looking for. And he then spent the next nine years mentoring me in the way that grandfather had mentored him. Uh, but I'll tell you right now, if it wasn't for the, the grandmothers that I had and my uncles and aunts that kept me going from the very young age, he wouldn't have given me the time of day because he basically needed me to be willing to go out on errands, solve mysteries and come back and tell him the story. And I had already had 10 years of training with Nanny Cecil for that, you know, so you can see the threads of culture from Ireland and from Poland coming through and giving me enough of a support to make me ready for somebody who had a whole lot more of the threads of culture than, than I did at the time. Um, but yeah, that was a very formative, formative moment. And uh, from, you know, he opened, he wrote his first book in 78, the tracker, and then he opened the tracker school. So at the age of 19, when I was still in college, I was one of his first instructors, but I was already deep in research at university for how does deep nature connection pass between generations. And that, you know, that's been my focus ever since. You know, that's what I've been doing. Wow. And just for our listeners, uh, Tom Brown, amazing individual who really started this whole restarted, I should say, or reinvigorated this culture. Uh, North America have spawned off so many tracking schools and, and obviously what John was just mentioning, his own experience um, has had a tremendous influence. And uh, yeah, that's that's an incredible story and uh, coincidence in quotes, if you will, <clears throat> the way that uh, that you met him. Um, what also, John, how did that ultimately lead to uh, your involvement or founding Wilderness Awareness School? Well, uh, between 78 and 83, um, I was at Rector's University and I was doing some deep research on trying to understand why some societies, you know, nobody's connected to nature and why, while in other societies, everybody is. And I thought, well, in our modern times, we really need a lot more people to be connected to nature. And I think that we could learn some tools from the societies around the world that still had this nature connection thing intact. And, you know, I, 
I researched the methods of my grandmother. I, you know, I looked into Ireland and old lore there. I looked into Poland. You know, I looked, I looked all over Europe for old stories of how this nature connection mentoring happened and when it stopped. You know, when did it really get interrupted there? Um, I looked into Asia. I looked into Africa, Australia, North and South America, uh, even some Polynesian cultures, because um, I was really looking for, you know, what 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 could I learn? What what could be modeled? in a universal way that wouldn't be cultural appropriation that would activate deep nature connection in people. Um, and you know, what's missing in the modern times. And at the time when I was doing this research, I was a part-time County naturalist, uh, for the park system. And I was doing a lot of environmental education. I started doing that as a volunteer at 16 for the park system, uh, through the Johnny Appleseed program. And then when I was uh, 18, uh, they hired me as a part-time naturalist and I led nature programs, you know, uh, using environmental education methodologies. And I kept thinking, you know, there's, okay, th it's good that we're doing this environmental education because some of these children, this is the only thing that they're going to experience for their whole childhood, right? They're going to get one day, they're going to come down from Newark in a bus, they're going to, you know, park here, they're going to all get out of the bus, and I've got five hours with them. To inspire them for the rest of their life because maybe they'll never get this chance again you know uh, and i kept thinking well wait a minute there's got to be a better way you know what about the children that live right around me could i get a handful of those children involved in a program and and do for them what tom and my grandmothers had done for me um and i was thinking about that the entire time i was doing my research so everything i researched i intended to apply in a project and when i graduated in 83 the project was called Wilderness Awareness School. And I started with five young uh, high school guys that were from uh, all boys Catholic high school who expressed interest after experiencing a, a one day event I ran for him. And one of the teachers over there, Pat Tracy, she would drive them over to my farm on every Tuesday. And I'd spend time with them outside for an hour and a half and she'd pick them up, you know, and I did that every week for several months. And I uh, was working in a restaurant that I was a partner in in town to help pay the bills. Um, and I met an elder there named Ingwe, who had been raised by the Akamba in East Africa and also the Bushmen in South Africa for his first six years. Um, and he was, uh, you know, in his 70s at the time, and he was super interested in what I was doing and came out of retirement to help me. And the two of us uh, grew that program from five kids to we had 265 kids at one point, and then we got all these contracts with the state and well, all kinds of different uh, projects. We ended up you know, working with about 500 children a year, but some of those children were with us every week for years, you know, and we were able to really, really move a lot of children into deep nature connection. And then a lot of them went on to form schools like Dan Gardoki and the White Pine programs. And, you know, a lot of other of those young people there went on to do this in their lives as well. And then it migrated to Washington State eventually? In 1995, we moved it to Washington State because the wilderness in New Jersey was all gone by then. <laughs> so there was very few opportunities and less demographic interests, you know, in the neighborhoods. Um, but we were, I was flying around doing adult programs around the country and I kept getting so many people showing up my programs, um, you know, east of Washington there in the foothills of the Cascades that we decided, well, we should move, move it here because people are actually interested and there's still wilderness, you know, there's still places for us to be able to do this locally. Cause that was the key. You know, if you wanted to do it every week, 
you needed access every week. You know, it was getting harder and harder to do that in New Jersey. And there was less and less interest and it was more and more expensive. So we thought, okay, let's move to Washington and we'll fly back to New Jersey to do adult programs, which is what we ended up doing. And um, I, I worked, you know, that year, 95, I actually started to move in 94, but moved there in 95. I began training people in 94 out there. And, and between 95 and 99, I trained um, all the staff to take over because I became interested in teaching the model now that made Wilderness Awareness School successful. I became interested in teaching that. You, you referenced it, the art of mentoring. And I began going all over the world, teaching it to other communities so that you know, other projects could develop locally, you know, and now there's, I've lost count. There's over a thousand local projects, you know, doing the same kind of work with children all over the world. That That's incredible. And I'm fascinated by this uh, idea of nature connection, uh, both from just an intellectual level, but also just my own personal experiences and how valuable it is. What are some of the gateways uh, if you will, into nature connection. So let's say uh, bird language or wildlife tracking. And, and if you can explain our listeners, how does that differ from, you know, what normally in our society we hear about when we think of nature, you know, in terms of recreation or education slash mm-hmm. science? Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the things that um, I had to figure out early on because um, there was something different about what Ingwe and I had put together because Ingwe had experienced the same kind of upbringing that Tom Brown had and that I had, you know? Um, and we were, you know, struggling like, okay, cause everybody thinks they understand nature connection. They under, you know, okay. Yeah. We bring, we basically bring people outside and we called the dragon brag in those days, you know, drag people through the woods and brag about everything, you know, <laughs> um, you know, sort of a show and tell kind of approach. Right. But that's, you know, that's sort of like uh, doing science outside, um, you know, and, you know, it's good, it's helpful, it's useful, and, and there's a time and place for it, but it does not necessarily result in connection. So we started to really look at um, the way people in modern times relate to nature. Um, what is nature relationship? And we saw that some people love to go out in nature just to get the exercise and to recreate, right? It makes them feel better. So the motivation is, Every time I do this, I come back feeling better. So that's not really nature connection because, you know, people will mountain bike or they'll surf or they'll ski, right? Or they'll walk their dogs because that's a legitimate way for people to recreate nature. And it's, and it can lead to a lot of really cool connections, Uh, but it tends not to because the recreation approach tends to be um, go out there, exercise, breathe, enjoy yourself, have fun, laugh a lot, come back and feel good, right? Um, and there's whole industries, you know, you know, billion dollar industries that are in service to nature recreation. And I would also include in that, you know, people who just walk in the evenings after work or people who garden. Right. Um, so that's that's nature recreation. So kind of put that in the back of your mind. And then let's go over and look at nature education. Right. And nature education is that the drag and brag approach, as I was talking about earlier, you know, a bus pulls up, 30 kids get off walk them through the woods, show them all the cool things that you can in the shortest amount of time possible, right? Give them a few experiences that they will remember and then put them on the bus and say goodbye. You know, it's based on science and it's, it's interpretive science, right? You're, you're out in the field with people and you're teaching them about the trees and ecology. And if you get close to a bird, you can point it out to them, but mostly you can't because you've got 30 kids with you. So, 
you tend not to see wildlife up close, right? Um, you know, and that's nature education, and, and that that's been around for a long time. The environmental ed movement has got that pretty well cornered, you know, if you will, and um, you know, people have experienced that. But again, recreation and education are not connection, and connection is something different. So the third category we identified was nature connection, and you know, if you look at, let's say, a million people in modern America, you know, what percentage of them are likely to have experienced nature connection to the point where it moved the needle inside of them. And you're going to find it's a pretty low percentage. Um, and basically, nature connection tends to happen when, for instance, um, you know, children live on the edge of the woods, or they got a cool backyard with an old oak tree and some cool plants growing around it. And mom and dad are busy, and they tend to just spend a lot of time alone, just hanging out, laying on their back, looking up at the bugs, walking on the branches. You know, it's nature connection emerges from the instinct for the children to slow way down and to feel the rhythm of nature in their own body, to get a little bit dreamy, basically. And they end up building relationships with that cool old tree in the backyard or the little fairy garden that they make out of acorns and sticks and whatever, you know. Um, if you leave children alone in nature for hours at a time every day, they'll, they'll quite naturally, instinctively um, bond with nature. And, that, and that's a deeper process. It's not intellectual. It's more kind of based on curiosity in the moment and a sense of timelessness. This is what you refer to as the unstructured playtime for kids, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep. And it's very much driven by their imagination, you know, and Richard Louvre uh, writes about that in his book, Last Child in the Woods, Saving Our Children from Nature Deficit Disorder, because he identifies that people in my generation and older, you know, people born before the 19, well, or in the 1960s or earlier, there's a lot more people from those generations that experience nature connection because it, it was before television got good. It was before internet got turned on. It was before video games and other things competing for our attention, um, you know, got really well entrenched. Right. So I grew up with three channels on the television and it wasn't very good half the time, you know, so you didn't really depend on TV for your entertainment. You came in and watched certain things. Um, and you knew what time they were. So you set aside those times. I'd love Bugs Bunny, for instance. Right. Um, and half the time it was a rerun anyway. Right. Yeah. And, you know, so so there was, you know, there's a lot of research on on that era in uh, um, in the U.S. mostly, but also Canada. And I also find that people in England and, and Germany and Australia, they have a very similar uh, history um, with you know, when did it, when did nature connection sort of fall out of the population? And, and it, you know, it started in the eighties, basically the late eighties and into the nineties. So um, influ uh, modern influences that shifted the, the, you know, gross behavior of, of the population, because no, I don't think anybody really was intentional about nature connection. I think it was a side effect of busy parents and kids playing outside together and in organ or, you know, semi-organized, you know, decentralized mobs, you know, the kids would all go out in the morning and they'd all find each other and they all go play in the woods and make dams in the creek and build forts and, 
you know, the people from that generation know nature. That's exactly what I did as a kid. And those are my fondest memories, honestly. Mm hmm. Yep. So, you know, and what it basically tells you is that children are hardwired for nature connection. They don't actually need adult supervision in order to achieve it. And when adults tend to supervise nature activities, they tend to move it towards either recreation or education, right? Um, but it's usually a program, yeah? Whereas connection, again, it needs timelessness. It needs to be driven by the instincts and curiosities of individuals in the moment. Um, it's a natural unfolding of the nervous system, right? And that points to the fourth category, which is where I specialized, and that is deep nature connection. So, you know, we coined that phrase because uh, one of the editors who worked on What the Robin Knows with me, he said, you know, John, um, I've worked on, and he was a, you know, retired New York Times editor. So he was a pretty severe, you know, guy he asked a lot of questions <laughs> and wondered, you know, John, are you telling, are you talking nonsense here with this part about bird language? Cause I've never experienced that. And I talked to one of my birding friends who's a birding expert. He says, he's never experienced it. Are you sure you're not just making this up? You know? And I'd be like, no, Mike, I, I know this is, this is real. You know, this really is. And here's, here's an article that Dan Gardoki researched that points out that we know that this works, you know, and he would read that and he'd say, well, that's really interesting because my, bird watching friend doesn't doesn't know that doesn't believe it doesn't believe it's possible and uh so he was very much a pushback against the things that i suggested for that book guy the whole way along and then he said to me one day um hey john you know i i want to uh put a word i want to put words in your mouth i never do this when i'm editing for a writer he said i, I never want to change their voice or add something to it and but I really feel compelled to to uh, tell you a story and ask you if you would entertain instead of calling this bird language, if you would want to call it deep bird language. And I'm like, Mike, now you're the guy who sounded soft headed. <laughs> and he laughs. He says, I know, I know. I can't believe these words are coming out of my mouth. He said, but, you know, I've worked on well over 100 books and none of those books changed me, you know, meaning him as the, you know, the as a man, right? Mike, the writer, Mike Bryant said, none of those books changed me. You know, I could go in there and I could work on the manuscript. I could ask critical questions. I could get the author to get clear on certain pieces and this and that. He said, but you know, I started as Mike. And I, when I ended that book project, I was still the same old Mike. He said, but your book has changed my life. It's changed me. And I said, oh my gosh, this is interesting. Mike, do tell. He said, well, Remember how I doubted your whole idea about the bird plow and Cooper's hawks and the oppression, the big hundred yard quiet place that that bird creates, you know? And I said, yes, I remember you doubting that. <laughs> he said, well, I was, I was editing that part of the, of the book and I was at staying at my sister's here in Texas and I, I was editing that part of the book and I heard some loud bird alarms. I saw out the window a bunch of birds fly off in what you would call a bullet and they were ditching and... Then, then through the open window, I could hear it got really quiet out there. Just a little while ago, there was all kinds of birds singing. And now it was dead quiet. And I said to myself, I got up from my computer and I said to myself, well, if John Young is telling the truth. And if he's right, if I walk out this door, there should be a Cooper's Hawk within the middle of that hundred yard quiet spot. And John, I walked out that door and there that Cooper's Hawk was sitting right in the middle of that silence, just like you said. 
and I can't stop paying attention to bird language now. And ever since I started paying attention to bird language in the way that I am now, it's changing who I am. You know, I can feel my perception changing. I can feel the way I experience the world. I can, even the way I see myself is shifting. <laughs> he said, so this book changed me. Can we call it deep bird language? And I said, yes, by all means. <laughs> and then I, then I went back to my research team and I said, I think I figured out what makes us different from education, recreation, and connection. We are deep nature connection, not nature connection, because we are proactively strategizing how to use models to get people to these deeper connection results quicker, right? And I, I've heard so many other similar stories of that. In fact, a professor that I work with at the University of Florida, Dr. Katie Seaving, who had been in the lab studying bird language for several decades and had made some credible discoveries, especially related to uh, parrots, titmice, and chickadees. Um, but until she came across your work and, and got to do a bird sit with you, um, she said it had all become kind of dead to her. You know, it was just information. Um, it may be interesting, uh, but really she was getting tired of it. And she said when she saw that, exactly like the story you're talking about, Cooper's Hawk, it just opened a whole new world. Like everything changed. It just made it all come alive for her. And, you know, a reminder of her why she got involved in this to begin with and just gave her a completely different perspective. And that perspective was deep nature connection. Mm, so, that's, um, I really, uh, thank you for sharing that. And just, you know, for the listeners, uh, a parrot is not a parrot, but a parrot, P-A-R-I-D. That's just the name of a family, which includes chickadees and titmice. And, 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 and when Lee, when you say that Katie was in the lab, you know, she also spent, what, tens of thousands of hours in the field recording and observing ch chickadees and titmice, right? She did, and has come to all kinds of conclusions, which goes beyond this podcast here, but that actually parrots um, or titmice chickadees are the sentries of the forest. Uh, they're the guardians. Everybody listens to them. They're essential for ecosystem health, in the, and they're found throughout the world, a couple exceptions, but especially in the whole Arctic regions. And she actually is the one or one of her grad students discovered uh, that why pishing doesn't really work in uh, South America, like in the Amazon, is because you don't have parrots there. Mm. Um, and the acoustical signature uh, of titmice and chickadees is very similar to when a human makes the psh, 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 psh sound. So that's why when uh, I think most birders don't know this, but that's why pishing actually works <laughs> because other birds uh, tune into it like it was a titmice uh, or chickadee who was alarming. So oh, that's amazing. Yeah, it is. And she's made many other discoveries, too. Uh, and, and I think, as you like to say, and, and other people who study uh, bird language uh, in the field, is that science is now catching up to what, you know, indigenous cultures have known and practiced for, you know, thousands, thousands of years, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, you know, one of the things that fascinated me the most when I first met the Kalahari Bushmen, right? Um, and this was a group of Bushmen that uh, had not um, joined up with the uh, reservation system, if you will, right? They were still living their original ways and not unlike the Apaches in, in the story from grandfather there. But um, when I met those people and I met their children, I've never seen children from the age of two and three and four and five so alert to bird language. Like every time a bird alarm went off, all their heads turned. 
And, you know, I, I teach bird language to modern families and there's children there who are super keen on wanting to learn it, you know, like they making their mom and dad learn it with them and they're really excited about it, but they don't have that ability to pay attention to every little sound and change in the environment around them. And so I, I made up my mind at that point that I would go back and I would uh, interview the Bushmen to figure out what they know about bird language, right? And I spent two weeks doing that. And it was one of the most fascinating two weeks of my life. Um, and I, I went there with the assumption. Now listen to this assumption, okay? So I'm, I'm outing myself, okay? I went out with the assumption that the people who would know the most bird language would be the hunters because they have to leave the village, you know, two or three at a time, just two or three of them traveling together, going miles and miles from the village um, into, the, into the deep country where they would encounter lions and hyenas, leopards, elephants, and musk, you know, a lot of dangerous things, cobras and mambas and night adders and death adders and pup adders, right? So uh, they were really at risk. And I just assumed, okay, they're going to know bird language like the back of their hand. And well, they know a lot more bird language than most, but it was the women, it was the mothers who knew the most bird language. And I was like, oh my God, how could I be so dumb? Of course, because the women go out without weapons, without men to protect them, to gather plant foods. And they've got children with them. And so they have to know the difference between a mongoose and a hyena. They can't make a mistake, you know, because it could cost their children their lives. Um, they have to be proactive and know where the lions are and so that they could keep a couple of miles between them and the lions at all times so that they don't have to encounter lions. Uh, and their knowledge of bird language was so nuanced and so detailed. And they, of course, were passing it on to the children. Um, and I was like, yep, of course, the grandmothers. It's the grandmothers. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> the men didn't need to know because they could use their weapons. And if they got into trouble at the last minute, it made for a good story back at the village anyway. Right. Around the campfire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When they got back and had an audience, people love when they tell stories, that, Oh, we accidentally bumped into lions. And then they tell these really funny stories and, you know, you know how so-and-so climbed a tree and got thorns in his hands and screamed. And, you know, they, they love, you know, the slapstick of it. Right. So they're less invested in knowing the nuance of every single thing that makes uh, uh, what, what Tom Brown would call a concentric ring. You know, when a mongoose moves or a weasel moves, there's a concentric ring. You know, when a snake moves, there's a concentric ring. And that means, you know, how do the birds and animals react to the presence of another thing? Um, and that's what bird language basically is, right? It's bird and animal language. You know, it's not limited to birds. As you said, you know, everybody listens to the titmice and the chickadees. Well, that includes the deer. That includes the coyote, right? Well, I'm, I'm reminded as you talk about the Klaus Zuberbuehler story uh, doing his research in the Ivory Coast, I believe, it, uh, listing all the 10 primates and then figuring out everything is listening. The birds are listening, the monkeys, the monkeys are listening, the birds. And ultimately he was able through acoustical analysis to interpret leopard calls. And, and that, that actually brings up a, a good point is that with these disciplines like bird language or wildlife tracking, 
what is different about them? Why do you get nature connection out of those? And what are some of the attributes of nature connection versus some of the other things we talked about? Like, not there's anything wrong with it, but, you know, riding your mountain bike, uh, you know, through the woods. Well, you know, may I just say, you know, uh, I want to make super clear uh, for the listeners that I don't like say this one's better than that one, you know, and, and what I like to think about, especially in our modern times is that we actually have to integrate recreation, education, and nature connection, you know, and that deep nature connection accounts for all three of those, right? Because if I'm going to make deep connection through bird language to the birds and animals around where I live, I need to know the name of that one. So I need to look it up and I need to read about it. You know, how big is its territory? What does it eat? You know, what time of year does it mate? You know, how many offspring does it have? So on, right? So Deep Nature Connection inspires education and also inspires recreation. And, and, and really what I'm saying is that we need all of it, right? We need all of it, but we got to balance them. And the, the, so the benefits of Deep Nature Connection uh, show up in what we call the attributes of Deep Nature Connection. Um, and there's a lot of research, by the way, that backs every single thing up that I'm about to say. Um, you know, the, the Nature Connection, when we get Deep Nature Connection, we are happier we are more vital, meaning we have more energy in our bodies. We're more motivated and curious. So happiness is one. That motivated, energized is another. We have the ability to listen to each other's stories in a really, really profoundly present way. So that makes the person who's telling the story to us feel that we're really there and listening. Um, we call it unconditional listening or deep listening to other people's stories. Um, and that benefits both the listener and the teller. Um, the fourth attribute is that we develop a strong sense of empathy and connection, which, you know, makes us want to care for things, right? So we become more empathetic, uh, which makes us better people, really. Um, the fifth one is, you know, when that empathy kicks in, we suddenly become internally motivated. And this is key. We are internally motivated, intrinsically motivated to want to make the world a better place. Like, okay, well, hey, I see all these things around me have a life to live and can I do things to make it better for them? You know, we might start thinking about how to redesign our, our landscaping, for instance, right? To make it more native bird friendly. You know, like people naturally start moving into that conservation ethic um, because they have deep nature connection. And, you know, Richard Louvre identifies that in Last Child in the Woods. You know, he basically said that all these children who grew up with nature connection from spending lots of time getting to know their place and those trees and those animals, that those are all the people that became volunteers and donors to the conservation movement. And ever since the eighties, the conservation movement has been shrinking in membership because as these elders pass away, no one in the next generation is picking that up because they don't have that level of connection anymore. So, you know, conservation was driven by nature connection and that is a really important, um, for me, a reason to do this work, you know, to really be there to, to hold that in place. I, I'm reminded, as you say that, the old adage, you only value what you love. Mm -hmm. And uh, if I understand you correctly, our listeners is, I think to a large degree, nature connection is really essential for conservation. Um, yes, and the more you care about something, the more you're going to want to not only save it, but as you said, expand it. And interesting mm -hmm. as you're talking, I think I can hear a robin alarming in the background there. 
but uh, that that's really interesting. And and maybe if you can expand on that a little more, um, you know, in, in our culture today, we hear our society, we hear a lot about, uh, you know, meditation and awareness. But for me, one of the distinguishing factors of, of these you know, disciplines like bird language is that that's exactly what they do rather than just blowing through nature or on a walk. Again, not there's anything wrong with that. That's great. And, I, you know, I go out and do that sometimes or go for a run. But when you stop and really begin to tune into what's going on and, and take it all in, there's just something, it seems like in our DNA that it, it awakens something in us. And, and it seems essential and it's very gratifying in a way. Mm -hmm. And it starts this whole lifelong process of uh, not just from information, not so much like generating a life list uh, for, uh, you know, number of birds you see, although that certainly comes with it because you're going to see more, but you become part of the story. And uh, referenced earlier the the Klaus Zuberbuehler story, if anybody can find that uh, on the internet, but, you know, talks about when he's able to tune into these monkey calls distinguish a leopard alarm and then he realized that the leopard was following him which was kind of scary on one part but on another part it was like he was part of the story and it seems like to me that's an essential part of nature connection well yeah and, and deep nature connection that's a guarantee you know that you start to realize that you become part of the story like you know how you said that you know, if you go out there with all your senses tuned, then you start to feel like you're part of the story. But here's the thing that listeners should really think about. Do you think you're not part of the story already? You know, like right now, if you walked out the door and, and walked 100 yards away from your house into the into the, you know, the landscape around you, the birds and animals would talk about you. And I like to ask this question to people because what are they saying about you? The moment you become aware that they're talking about you, whether you like it or not, and just because you think you're not part of the story doesn't mean that you are not part of the story, right? You are automatically. And when people walk through the, through the landscape thinking that they're not part of the story and they're just sitting there thinking in their heads as they're walking and they might be enjoying the walk and, you know, it's a pleasure, pleasurable day out, you know, the temperature's just right and it feels good to be out. But they may not think that the birds are giving them the time of day. But I'll tell you right now that if I was there, I would know you were coming two minutes before you arrived because the birds would talk about you in a way that would tell me that you were coming with that lack of awareness. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating when I say that. The birds are talking about you. And the moment you realize that is the moment that you begin to enter into that conversation consciously and intentionally. And that drives deep nature connection, that kind of level of intention and awareness. And it's a routine. You know, it's not something that happens on your first walk out, although it might. Um, it's really about building up your nervous system to awaken those things that Lee was referencing that we're born with. You know, we're, we're hardwired for this. You know, it kept our ancestors alive. Uh, but there's benefits to it. It isn't just that it'll keep you from getting eaten by a lion. It's also that it activates those attributes of connection. You know, and I, I gave you the first five, right? Happiness, vitality, uh, unconditional listening capacity, empathy, and wanting to be helpful. Uh, the sixth one is when it kicks in at a deeper level. And that's when you start to feel uh, what we call in Coyote's Guide, 
uh, to Connecting to Nature, which, by the way, is a great book on this whole topic, if you're interested. Coyote's Guide to Connecting with Nature by myself, uh, Ellen Haas, and Evan McGowan. Um, you know, we talk about it as awe and reverence. Like, you start to really appreciate just being alive. You're just like, oh, my gosh, I woke up another day and I get to be here. And this is such a magical planet that we live on. Oh, isn't it so beautiful? Like, that's a wonderful, wonderful uh, attribute. You know, we also call it being fully alive, you know, really appreciating life. So that's number six. And number seven, and this is also known, you know, connection, as Lee referenced earlier, we will preserve what we love. And we love only what we develop connection to. So I've, I've come to recognize that developing connection capacity increases our capacity to be loving, forgiving, and to hold that compassionate space for others, which is so lacking in modern times, you know? Um, you know, it's a recipe for building love. Uh, so that's the seventh attribute. And the eighth attribute, which is also kind of what I call the keystone attribute, is the quiet mind. And Lee referenced that a little bit earlier. Uh, that's what changed Mike, the writer, right? All of a sudden, he's listening to bird language all the time. So now his mind goes quiet. And when your mind goes quiet, your creativity increases. You, you begin to hear your own inner creative voice coming up. The quiet voice within you begins to be louder. So you, your intuition increases. Your creativity increases. You know, it's the, the quiet mind, we call it. And uh, it's the keystone attribute because if you start people off exercising the quiet mind by uh, expanding their senses on a routine basis and teaching them bird language so that they want to pay attention all the time, the quiet mind will come on quicker and that drives the other attributes faster. Wow. I, I love that. And I, I especially like the part you were talking about it being a conversation. Um, I'm reminded of the poet David White, who is always talking about having a conversation with reality and, and he's a naturalist by the way. Mm -hmm. And, um, that's such a salient point because actually a conversation is happening. We just haven't been tuning into it. In fact, when I, I teach bird language, I like to say it's almost like you're, let's say we're growing up in a house and you had another family living with you who was speaking a foreign language, but you couldn't understand it. You never learned that language. And then later on, you say, go to college, you study that, and then you come back and then you're able to tune in to what they're saying. And then they, you realize this whole time they were telling you these things like, Hey, you left a window open. Uh, you know, milkman left a jar of you know milk at the door or, Hey, your brother just stole your allowance for the week out of your jar. Right. And you had no idea this was going on. Um, so just the fact that you weren't tuned into it or aware of it doesn't mean it's not happening. And then I think the other point that you make is that when you do turn in, tune into it, then your response becomes different and then nature starts treating you differently. And I, I know that one of your big things is increasing when you're out in, in nature, increasing your zone of awareness and thereby diminishing your, your zone of disturbance. Yeah, that Dan Gradoki um, pioneered that concept, that principle. He was thinking about, well, we were working on what the Robin knows. He was a science editor and I'd been mentoring him since he was 15 years old. And he went on to get his master's in science and became a formidable naturalist and birder, just incredible, incredible ecologist. Um, but he, he was the one, when we were writing the book, he says, you know, I think I understand the goal of what the Robin knows, you know, the book itself. Like what we're really trying to do is get people to, you know, cause I like to say it this way, you know, people wear their zone of awareness, like a wetsuit, you know, they, 
in modern times, we're so busy in our heads, we absolutely, our awareness is basically at our skin. You know, it's, it, we wear it so tight against us. We're not stretching out into the ecosystem around us. And then when we walk in the landscape with our awareness really pulled in, we create a, a very big disturbance. Um, and when you push your awareness out and you really push it out there and you listen to the quietest sound and as far as you can hear to your left, out in front of you, behind you, out to your right, above you, and even at the ground level below your feet, you know, when you really stretch out and try to listen to all those places at the same time, your awareness gets really big and your disturbance gets really small. I mean, the moment you stretch your awareness like that and you can hold it like that from practicing for a while, it doesn't take that long, but the moment you can hold that awareness really big and walk in that way, you'll start to see a lot more wildlife because the birds won't be as freaked out by you. And so the, they're not given warnings of your approach. People like me won't perceive you coming from two minutes away. <laughs> so John, you know, our culture, obviously, or, um, or perhaps lack thereof, um, has, as you said earlier, moved away from uh, having a connection to nature over, you know, several decades. Well, more than that. I mean, honestly, it started, you know, you can go back, like if I look at my English ancestors, I can go back and say that my English ancestors lost their culture when the Romans completely destroyed them, right? 2000 years ago, so to speak, you know, plus or minus. Um, my Irish ancestors lost it when the English who had lost their culture went and destroyed them, you know. Um, you know, my Polish ancestors, I can't pin it down because the Polish were being conquered left and right all the time through history. So it's hard to know when the Polish lost that really deep nature connection pattern that, that they used to have. But so, yes, uh, you know, let's just say that there was a big shift in, you know, the 80s. Right. But there was an even bigger shift, you know, centuries ago, um, where when you go with the Bushmen that I visit in Botswana, they never shifted, right? They're still in their original culture and they deliberately formed a, uh, an intentional community so they could maintain that, you know, not unlike, you know, grandfather's people um, during the Apache Wars. Um, so there are pockets around the world where people are still living that really deep nature connection culture so that everybody gets nature connected in every generation. Uh, but that's getting very rare now. Um, and I'm trying to document and research as much as I can before we lose that completely, because I think the world needs it now more than ever. So how do we get that back in your estimation? And, you know, we hear a lot, particularly like social media about connection, but of course there's a lot of studies showing now or movies like the social dilemma where, you know, not for everyone, but it can do the exact opposite. So how, in your view, and again, uh, on two levels, I guess. One is just the, the personal attributes and all the things that, you know, you mentioned earlier, uh, the, you know, just all the things we need as, as individual humans. How do we get that back? And then also, you know, as it relates to conservation and, you know, uh, helping the planet, if you will, uh, from the standpoint of, of species and landscapes and overall ecology, what, what do you think we need to do as a society slash culture? Well, that's a big design challenge, Lee. Um, and I think we should tease apart two things, right? One of them is, let's just say any individual listener who's hearing this conversation says, hey, I want to get started, right? So there's like an individual approach, 
right? Because it's literally right outside our door, right outside our window right now. You know, we don't have to go anywhere. We don't have to go to the Kalahari and be raised among the Bushmen to have this because we're already hardwired for it, which means that you already have the software inside you. It's just waiting to be activated, right? It's already there. You were born with it, right? So it's not like you have to go get a master's degree in this in order to have it. You just have to wake it up. Best way to do that? I'm doing it right now. You know, you observed, you heard that sound in the background that sounded like a robin. That was actually a olive-sided flycatcher giving its peep, peep, peep call, which does sound an awful lot like a robin. Um, the, you know, I sit here multiple times a day. It's just a patio with a chair. And right now, as I'm talking to you, I've got a junco five feet off of my left foot right now, just hanging around, scratching in the grass, completely comfortable with my presence. Um, you know, I build relationships right outside my door. I come out here and I listen for the quietest sound. Talking to you, another junco is landing right in front of me, right? So I can, I can watch bird language and be in this conversation at the same time. And I can integrate this nature connection core routine of sitting and observing and getting to know my neighbors. You know, the Bushman would say, when you first see that bird and you've never seen it before, and it looks at you and you look at it, and there's that moment of mutual recognition you know, between two beings, a thread will form between you, right? And over time, that thread will become a string, it'll become a cord, it'll become a rope. And when it becomes a rope, then that empathy is there, you know? And so I have a relationship with my juncos now, I know where their nests are, I know how many young they had. Uh, I know the wild turkeys that hang around here. I know when the lion killed the turkey and that the turkeys abandoned this place for, you know, five days. Uh, because of the trauma of losing one of the hens who had babies with her, you know. Um, I know where that, where the other hen, because there was two hens together raising uh, six chicks together. They each had so many. And they brought them together so the two moms could co-parent. And I know that when the lion killed the one hen, the other hen went a mile north, north of here and landed at my neighbor's place because he said suddenly another mother showed up with a bunch of babies and now there's three mothers and now there's 18 babies collectively. You know, and he said just a couple of days ago, there was only 12 and two moms. I'm like, oh, I know who that is. <laughs> you know, so I am just constantly curious. And, you know, I come out here day and night. I come out here first thing in the morning for the dawn chorus. I'm here at twilight when the sun's going down over the trees. And I know this place through the seasons and through the times of day, but you know, as far as I'm concerned, I'm paying rent for this place. So I'm also paying tuition for my deep nature connection journey, you know, because I don't have to get in the car and drive to a park to have this. I've got trees, I've got grass, I've got birds right here. I've got squirrels, I've got deer, coyotes, lions, bobcats, you know, they're all moving through and I'm paying attention all the time. And I'm always asking questions. I'm super curious and I share the questions with my partner, Sarah, and she's always working on questions. And the two of us talk every evening about what we saw today and what the Junko showed us or, you know, and we're sharing stories and listening to each other in that deep way. You know, this, this is how you do it for yourself. You know, it's right there outside your door, you know, and people are like, well, I live in LA in a high rise. I can't, I'm like, no, no, you can, you know, and I was visiting with some friends, in fact, the people who uh, sponsoring me for the TED talk, you know, the people who ran that TEDx uh, down in, in Grand Park, LA, where I did my TEDx talk, you know, they were really questioning whether or not this would work for them because they lived way up high in a high rise. And I said, yeah, come on, let's, let's do it right now. You know, we went out 
on their patio where they could see over the city. And we went to the window and we watched the pigeons. And I said, do you see how those pigeons are acting? There's a hawk around here somewhere. Let's look, you know, and then I spotted the red tail hawk on sitting on another high rise, you know, and they're like, oh, my God, it works here, too. I'm like, yes, it does. You know, we we can't make the excuse that we can't get to the Kalahari, you know, so I'll never get nature connected because I can't go to the Bushman. No, that's not how it is. You know, the moment you choose to stretch your awareness bigger than your disturbance is the moment you enter into the conversation is the moment you begin your journey. And Coyote's Guide will take you all a long way. If you just listen to what's in Coyote's Guide, it will totally take you all the way. Um, we wrote that book for you. So if you want to go on the journey, you can start in your own backyard. That, that would be the, that's the first, like I said, I'm teasing apart what needs to be done at a societal level versus what needs to be done at an individual level. Well, that's, that's great. I think that's the hope that it's already within everybody. Um, you, it's not, uh, this isn't uh, only a chosen few or selected. Everybody has this within them. And uh, I'm reminded, I've heard you say before of, you know, people are not aware of what they're not connected to, but there's this idea of like with the, the Bushmen in Africa of unconscious competence. Once you start doing this, it's like you, you do become competent in nature connection and you get all these attributes and you don't have to, you know, go get a master's in it. Right. Uh, or overthink it. It's just something that can come naturally to us. Right. I mean, it literally comes naturally. That's, that's the whole point. Right. You know, people sometimes feel guilty when they go on the nature connection journey because it's so much fun and it doesn't feel like they're doing anything. And I'm like, well, no, that's probably because you're doing it right. <laughs> you know, it, it's natural. You know, it comes to us naturally. Right. So it feels like nothing, but it has residual impact. Like you'll build a critical mass of reawakening, calibrating and uh, habilitating your nervous system because my friend Kathleen, who's an occupational therapist, uses nature connection as a, uh, a clinical tool. Um, and it works better than the clinical tools that she was trained in occupational therapy. She's really convinced bird language is one of the most powerful ways to do occupational therapy with modern children. And she said, you know, people think that I rehabilitate the human nervous system, but I woke up one day at like three in the morning and I just said out loud, you can't rehabilitate something that hasn't been habilitated in the first place. Right. And that's, mm. that's what it is. You know, we're born with the potential for calibrating and habilitating this amazing nervous system that we possess, but modern life doesn't call us to do that. So it just waits in the background for someone to unpack it, you know, and that someone is just you, <laughs> you know, it's just your choice to awaken that, which is already inside of you, um, you know, and turn on that original operating system, you know, that's, that's there. It just hasn't been, it hasn't been exercised because no one asked it to be. Yeah. And I, I think the beauty of a lot of these is that when you connect several of these things like bird language or wildlife tracking, I, I like to term it as end-to-end uh, -end experiences. I know you brought up earlier, <clears throat> uh, I do a lot of fishing as well, and you were fishing as a kid. And, you know, a lot of times you go fishing now, it's just, you've got whatever the gear is, a rod, you, you land a big fish and, you know, it's great. And I do catch and release and let it go. And, you know, there's some joy there, but it's so much better when you are really tuned in. And I can remember even just a few years ago where I didn't have a rod with me and I found a piece of line and I had kind of made a hook out of something else and I carried it along the bank and 
I caught this one fish. I think I was camping and then I ended up actually uh, scaling it and eating it. And just that whole thing of, of doing the entire thing was so much more rewarding. It was only a small fish. It didn't matter. Um, but this kind of end to end experience, uh, you start getting out doing these things you're using your hands or if you're a hunter, you make your own bow. Or I, I remember one time, even I was traveling for a year, uh, I was on the road a lot and I, I just had to mend my own clothes, my socks, but it was just something about putting those on that I had repaired the holes, even though I didn't actually, um, make the sock to begin with. There was just something about that. And I think these, uh, type of, uh, activities that you're talking about really go to that of just getting people more connected. Mm-hmm. You know how simple it is. Like this, this woman was saying to me, I was in Georgia, I was teaching outside of Athens and uh, there was this woman, she said, you know, I can't really do this nature connection thing with my kids because I'll be outside with them for a little while. And then I got to go inside and prepare them dinner. <laughs> and I said, well, do you have a barbecue? <laughs> And she said, oh, yeah, well, yes, I do. And I, I said, well, what if, what if you all just stayed outside and just cooked things on the barbecue together? She's like, oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, so sometimes it's just rethinking it, you know, a little bit, right? How can we, we, we call those subsistence living skills, right? And that's one of the 13 core routines in Coyote's Guide that, you know, will get people into deep nature connection, you know, so yeah, we have you know, we have a two car garage and we open up that two car garage and right outside there's our table and our barbecue because we as a family will eat outside every time we can. Right. Why not? You know, why not integrate cooking into your nature connection routines? You can do it. I mean, we did it for what, 200,000 years prior to modern times. Yes, absolutely. Well, John, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. I don't know if you have any other last comments, but I think you covered so much ground in this. And I, I think above all from, you know, a nature connection standpoint is hopefully our listeners have gotten that how important it is to them personally. And then obviously on the conservation front, what that can lead to and, and how it can really be transformative on both levels. Yeah, well, I, you know, my only closing comment is kind of a reflection on the big question you asked me earlier. The, and I said, let's tease apart what has to be done on an individual level versus a societal level, right? And I, I just want to, you know, underline that the benefits that you get from practicing the deep nature connection core routines is well-being, more happiness, more vitality, more connection, more love. You know, these are all good things for us, you know, and, and I've never heard a person say, after they've been on the deep nature connection journey, please give me back my old unaware self. No one has ever said that. They've never asked the money back guarantee. I want my old unaware self back. <laughs> so the benefits are clear for, for the individual. And on a societal level, we have to influence the conversation of the mainstream world, which I've been doing a lot of in the last 20 years, you know, to really embrace what is connection. You know, because connection has fallen out of our, our understanding. When we think of connection, we think of it in terms of whether my phone is connected or not, right? Do I have a good enough connection to do a Zoom call? But what does connection really mean? And how do we get to it? You know, what is the best way to enhance connection? And, I, you know, Richard Louv, after he and I talked about this, um, after he wrote the, the Nature Principle, which was the book that followed The Last Child in the Woods, he, he and I were co-leading co uh, uh, keynotes um, at an event 
And after he heard me speak, he, he said to me in the back room after the speech, you know, John, I think this deep nature connection thing is really the most important thing. And we need to influence society at all levels to embrace what they've lost, you know, because it's really fallen out of modern awareness. You know, I've been committed to that. It's, you know, a strategy. You know, what I try to do is link together the practitioners of deep nature connection globally so that they are forming a practitioner's network where they can support each other and, you know, trade skills and ideas. And also like when somebody has to run a summer camp and they need more nature connection instructors, they can, you know, borrow from each other's communities, you know, and that, that network is now global. So that's one way that I'm helping to influence that is to support a global network of, of practitioners of deep nature connection mentoring. So, and there's other ways, but you're doing it right now, Lee, you know, this, this podcast is, is, uh, a really great contribution to, to the societal effort. So thank you for doing it. And thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah. And thank you again, John, for your time. And yeah, for everyone out there, you know, check out, find a wilderness school, uh, an instructor near you. There's all kinds of great programs out there. And uh, again, uh, thank you so much for your time, John. It's been a wonderful experience and look forward to see what you come up with next. (laughs) Thanks, Lee. Okay.